Daniel 9, 20 through 27, Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place." Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, as we touched on last week, and we're going to finish breaking this down tonight, this is a key, key, key passage in the Old Testament. Probably one of the most important, if not the most important Old Testament prophecy for understanding and unlocking almost all, if not all, New Testament prophecies about the return of Jesus and the coming kingdom and the tribulation period and all that, as you're going to see tonight. We left off last week in the middle of looking at the six things that God will accomplish for Israel and Jerusalem by the end of the 490 years being prophesied in these verses. The next one to be mentioned here in verse 24 is to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, let me just say to you, as much as believers today have been made righteous through faith in Jesus, and this righteousness is everlasting since it's God's righteousness and not ours, this isn't the righteous, everlasting righteousness that Gabriel's talking about. Remember, 490 years are decreed for who? Israel and Jerusalem. So these six things, to accomplish these six things, are tied to Israel and Jerusalem. The word translated everlasting could also be translated age or to bring in an age of righteousness or an era or a time of righteousness. Again, the church is not referred to here. This is referring to Israel, as you're about to see. This also matches this interpretation of this being tied to Israel and an age of righteousness coming. It ties to Old Testament prophecies about the coming age of righteousness one day for, the, for national Israel. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. I'm going to give you four, maybe five passages from the Old Testament that kind of illustrate the prophecies of a coming age of righteousness ruled by Jesus himself on the earth in Jerusalem. In, in Jeremiah chapter 23, look at verses 1 through 6. 
It says, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, God says, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Don't miss that. That's going to be important later on. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. By the way, anybody have a wild idea and a rough guess as to who this righteous branch is that's going to come and rule and reign in Jerusalem over Israel and the earth? Who is it? It's Jesus. A righteous branch coming from David is Jesus. He's going to come and his name is the Lord is our righteousness. Actually, Isaiah had already given us a glimpse of this. Go back to Isaiah chapter 11. <clears throat> Remember, Isaiah and Jeremiah were contemporaries. Isaiah started his ministry a little earlier uh, than Jeremiah did. And so Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, God says this through him. Listen closely to what it says. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and following. There shall come forth a shoot... From the stump of Jesse. By the way, the shoot from Jesse is David. David. David's the shoot. The stump is Jesse. And a branch from David's roots, his roots, from the shoot shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Isn't that cool? That's going to be an amazing time. Is that happening now, by the way? You want proof? I ain't going anywhere near a cobra hole right now. I'll tell you that right now. When I was preaching years ago, many years ago, I actually preached for a couple of weeks to about 200 pastors at this conference center in Thailand. And during the days, they would take us to do see, go see things. And they, if you've never been to Thailand, they have live cobra shows where they make the cobras do stuff. And there's nothing between you and the cobras. <laughs> I wasn't interested. But one thing I will tell you is my wife and I have passes to Disney and we love to go. And one of the things we love to do is go to Animal Kingdom and go on the safari ride and just look at the animals. But one day you'll be able to do that and there won't be any barriers between you and them. That's going to be pretty cool. Go to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Look at verse 26. 
But again, that passage in Isaiah showed us that this one that's going to come from David is going to rule in righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 26, And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as the, the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God making a promise to Jerusalem. They're going to be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Go to Jeremiah 33. Look at verses 14 through 16. <clears throat> Jeremiah 40, uh, 33, verses 14 through 16. Jeremiah 33, starting verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So once again, there's a day coming, an age of righteousness in which Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth. Now, by the end of the trip, uh, sorry, the thousand year reign of Christ, there's going to be sin. And of course, Jesus is going to deal with sin as the judge and all that. But there's going to be an age of righteousness in Jerusalem and in Israel and in the world, the start of the millennial kingdom. And here's why. The Bible actually says that we're going to come back with Jesus when he comes to set up his kingdom on the earth. Will we ever sin again? No. How come? Well, we know, well, we're righteous now, but we're, how come we still sin? We'll have our glorified bodies. We'll have our new bodies, and we won't sin anymore. That sin that's in our flesh still will be dealt with and gone because we've been dead and got new bodies. It's wonderful. And when we come back, we won't sin. Now, the Bible also says that there will be humans, Jews, who survived the tribulation period, and those that survive are going to be given righteousness and declared righteous, and they're going to get new bodies. And, and, and uh, uh, sorry, Old Testament saints are going to get new bodies, and they're going to come on the earth. But the humans who survived the tribulation period, the Jews who are going to believe, they're going to be given righteousness and come into the kingdom on the earth. And their Gentiles who are going to survive the tribulation period won't be a thousands. I mean, it won't be millions and millions, but they'll be those who do. And at the same time, the Bible says that he'll have the separation of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25 is not talking about how you get into heaven. Matthew 25 is talking about how Jesus comes to the earth. And if you remember Matthew 25, verse 31, it says that Jesus is going to come in his glory and he's going to sit on David's throne and he's going to separate the sheep and the goats and judge the Gentile nations according to how they treated Israel. Joel chapter 3, very clearly, verses 1 and 2 talks about that. And that's why in Matthew 25, in the sheep and the goats, it says... You, were, you visited me when I was sick, and you gave me water, and you fed me. And they said, when did we do this? And he said, when you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. And he's talking about how they treated Israel during that tribulation period and all that stuff. You remember, does that many of you remember? Try again. Have any of you ever seen or remember the Hiding Place movies about Corey Ten Boom and all that? If you haven't, by the way, go find it. And watch The Hiding Place. It's an amazing Christian movie about Corey Ten Boom and her sisters and, and, and what God did during the Holocaust and how their family hid the Jews when the Germans were killing them. It's just an amazing, amazing story. There's going to be people that believe in Jesus and who are Gentiles and they're going to treat Israel well and they're going to treat them as best they can during that time. And the Bible says that they're going to be given righteousness and enter into the kingdom. And there's going to be an age of righteousness on the earth. 
the age of righteousness is going to have sin start to infect it over time. Not like it is now. Satan will be bound. But there's still sin in the flesh of those humans that survive the tribulation period. And the Bible says at the end of the thousand-year reign, Satan's going to be released from the pit, and he's going to be able to tempt a whole lot of people that have been born during that time to fight against Jesus. But at this point, there will be an age of righteousness in Israel and starting in, in Jerusalem and across the globe. But it's going to be in the land. People just try to make, well, we're done here on the earth and we just go to heaven. No, there's going to be an age of righteousness on the earth with Jesus on the earth. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Jeremiah 23. Go to Jeremiah 23. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, therefore, Jeremiah 23, verse 7, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Now, the Jews have miraculously come back into their land. They became a nation again in May of 1948. Is that fulfillment of this prophecy? No. You don't know why? We saw that earlier tonight. In this age of righteousness, when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, there won't be any missing. Like I told you, there's still Jews all over the globe. As even though they're all in their land, they're not all in the land. There are many all across the globe. But at that time, they'll all be there. And none will be missing. And they'll dwell in their land. With Jesus there. Another thing that's going to happen, not just a setting up an age of righteousness or bringing in an age of righteousness... Number five of the six things here in Daniel 9, verse 24, is to seal both vision and profit. Now, this one's pretty basic. But tied to all these things being fulfilled comes also the fact that once all this has happened, the long-promised kingdom will have come, and there will no longer need to be any more prophecies or prophets. During the millennial kingdom, I'm going to be out of a job as a preacher. Now, I'll have other responsibilities that God's going to give me, but I'm not going to need to go preach and tell people about Jesus. You know why? Because everybody knows him. He's there, and everybody knows him. Jeremiah 31. Go to Jeremiah 31. Look at verse 34. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. Go to Acts chapter 3. I want you to go back with me to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 at the beginning of the church age, verses 17 through 21. Look at what God through Peter says. Peter was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he was under the filling of the Holy Spirit. So what was coming out of his mouth was Holy Spirit speaking through him. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says in chapter three of Acts, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. He's talking to the nation of Israel. I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that the times of refreshing may come 
come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Remember last week we talked about the fact that Jesus can't come back until Israel repents. When Israel, at the end of the tribulation period, acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah and they put an end to the transgression of rejecting Jesus, when they repent and they turn to Jesus, that's when Jesus comes back to the earth. It's going to be at the end of that tribulation period, that last seven-year period that we're going to look at tonight in the math that we're going to be doing. At the same time, Peter says, listen, all of the stuff the prophets talked about that were going to be restored, when Jesus comes back, all those promises are going to be fulfilled. By the way, we read a lot of those already last week and tonight. There's going to be an age of righteousness. There's not going to be sinning like it is anymore. And, and they're going to be able to have a kid play with a lion. And, and, and animals won't be eating each other. And everyone will know the Lord. It'll be an amazing time. I'm going to ask you to show of hands. How many of you are getting a little weary about what's going on in the globe right now? Would you not agree? I mean, we're getting homesick for heaven stronger than I ever have in my life. And all I can say to you, and we're going to say it at the end of our study tonight, hang on. Hang on. In due time, we will reap if we don't give up, the Bible says in Galatians 6, 9, and 10. And so, but let me just tell you, it's wearisome to be on this earth. But you know what? There's going to be a time coming when we won't have to deal with all this. And everybody's going to know the Lord, and it's going to be a wonderful time. You won't even have to try to figure out what church we can go to. Because finding a good church is even hard nowadays, isn't it? Man, it's crazy. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Let me show you something that was told about the men and women of faith at the end of the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. Look at verse 39. As you know, God's been speaking through the Hebrew writer, and he's been uh, talking about the men and women of faith and using them as an example to encourage us. And, and he says, in all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect or complete. In other words, all these Old Testament saint people who looked to God and trusted God in faith and were looking to his salvation and they were looking for the world that is to come and not the one they were in, they all died not receiving the promise yet of the kingdom, but God didn't want them to get it without us. And he's allowed us to be given it now and it's been given to us by grace through faith and we're all going to share in it together. Isn't that going to be awesome? That's why Paul in Romans 11, you're going to hear me preaching here. Paul in Romans 11 says, listen, God has hardened Israel in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And, but when he's done with the Gentiles in the church age, all Israel is going to be saved that survives the tribulation. But he says in chapter 11, in the middle of that section, he says, listen, don't think you're better than them. Because if their rejection means reconciliation for the world. How much better and more will it mean when they're brought back? Man, it's going to be awesome. Be praying for the Jews to believe in Jesus. I'm serious. Make that one of the strongest things you pray about now. Pray for the Jews to believe in Jesus. Father, begin to draw them. Lord, it's your timing. This is your plan. But we see in your plan there's going to come a point where you stop drawing the Gentiles and you start really drawing the Jews. That hardening in part is going to come to an end. If you're waiting for me to ask you for it, I'm asking for it now. Bring the Jews to you. Bring the Jews to you. 
Now, the last thing, the sixth thing here, the third thing we're going to look at tonight that concludes the six things that are going to be covered in the 490 years is to anoint a most holy place. Now, some of your translations say holy one. And some people try to make this Jesus. And I'm going to show you it cannot be a person. It has to be a most holy place. Because of the Hebrew words that are used here and how they're used exactly in the rest of the Bible, I'm just going to show you a few of those places. But as like I say, some translations try to make this an anointing of a person, Jesus, but the expression is never used in Scripture of a person. It's almost always used to describe the whole or part of the temple or the tabernacle. There's only one place it's not used to refer to a part of the tabernacle or the temple or the whole temple. There's only one place that it's not used to refer to that. But even as you're about to see, it's still referred to things that are tied to the worship in the temple. Go to 1 Chronicles 23. In 1 Chronicles 23, look at verse 13. It says, the sons of Amram, this is their names, Aaron and Moses. Aaron was set apart to dedicate the most holy things that he and his sons forever should make offerings before the Lord and to minister to him and pronounce blessings in his name forever. That term for the most holy things is the exact same Hebrew phrase that's used here to anoint a most holy place. Uh, Let me show you how that's also used in Exodus 26. Exodus 26, look at verses 33 and 34. Exodus chapter 26, look at verses 33 and 34. Again, talking about the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. There's that term again. So that when we have in Daniel 9, where it talks about to anoint in verse 24, anoint a most holy place. Exact same phrase is used here to describe the holy of holies in the temple. Remember those think, most holy things? We're tied to the worship in the temple in the most holy place. Let me give you one more. Go to 1 Kings 7. 1 Kings 7, verses 48 through 50. Here it's talking about the the temple itself. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and fire pans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. So once again, when it says here in Daniel 9, 24, that at the end of the 490 years, or in the conclusion of the 490 years, there's going to be anointing of a most holy place. Where is that most holy place? Not just the Jerusalem, but where in Jerusalem? In the temple. That's important. I want you to not miss that. There's going to be a temple for Jesus to anoint and to dedicate and make it holy again. Again, be careful of trying to figure out how it's all going to play out because right now there's no temple. God, as you know, had the temple of Solomon destroyed. 
When he, the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came and took him captive, they totally destroyed the temple, took all the stuff that was in it and took it to Babylon. At the same time, as you're going to see tonight, there were some decrees to go back and rebuild the temple. And they actually went back and rebuilt the temple after the Babylonian captivity. But some of the older people who had seen Solomon's temple but now saw the new one, the Bible says they wept because it was nowhere near as big and glorious as Solomon's temple was. But as you know, if you don't know, let me tell you, during the time of the Romans, Herod actually helped build and add on to that temple, so much so that when Jesus came on the scene, it was in a magnificent structure and all, and the disciples were pointing it out to Jesus. And of course, what does he say? Well, he's on the Mount, Temple Mount. He said, there's not going to be one stone left on top of another. And as you're going to see tonight, because of the rejection of the Messiah, he prophesied, Gabriel did in Daniel 9, 20 through 27, and Jesus himself in Matthew 24, that there was going to be a rejection of the Messiah, the anointed one, and because of that, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed again, and the temple was going to be destroyed again, and it was in AD 70. We'll deal with that a little bit more in a second. But there's going to be another temple. We know that. You know how we know that? The Bible, as we've been looking at already, has been telling us that at some point, the Antichrist is going to step into a wing of the temple and declare himself to be God. There has to be another temple built. Now, will that be built before the tribulation period, during the tribulation period? We don't know, but it has to be there during the midpoint of the tribulation because that's when the Antichrist steps into it. Is that part of the covenant that the Antichrist is going to confirm with the many? We don't know. And the most holy place in the temple that Jesus is going to anoint, is it the temple that was made for the Antichrist to step into? Or is it going to be a different temple? We don't know. But I can tell you this much. The Bible clearly states that during the thousand year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom on the earth, there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Ezekiel 43. Look at verses 11 and 12. Actually, I could take a ton of time in Ezekiel and show you a ton more, but we're just going to show you just a couple of verses in Ezekiel 43. In Ezekiel 43, look at verses 11 and 12. Now we'll start in verse 10. Ezekiel 43, verse 10. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, its entrances, that is its whole design and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that they may observe its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple, the whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy Behold, this is the law, the temple. And then in this whole section, you see the glory of the Lord will fill the temple. And then there's all the instructions for the temple. And if you studied Ezekiel, and you remember our, some of you might remember our study of Ezekiel, there's going to be a river that trickles out or a stream that comes out from underneath the throne of God in the temple. And it's going to run all the way to the Dead Sea. And every so many cubits, it's going to get deeper and deeper. And by the time it gets to the Dead Sea, it's going to be so deep you can swim in it. And it's going to turn the Dead Sea fresh. And there's going to be a temple during the Millennial Kingdom on the earth. By the way, I don't know if you caught this yet or not. That's another provable evidence that there has to be a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. You know why? Because the Bible clearly states, and I'll show it to you in a second. The Bible clearly states that when we get to the eternal state, 
There's no temple. There's no temple when we live in heaven forever and ever in the eternal state in the new Jerusalem. Go to Revelation 21. I saw you wrinkle your forehead over there, Jeannie. That's good. I, I get to teach you something here. Go to Revelation 21. Look at verse 22. Well, that's the Lord then if you learned anything because I don't got much. Revelation 21, look at verse 22. Remember in chapter 21 at the beginning, you see in your Bibles, it's the new heaven and the new earth. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city didn't have need of the sun or the moon or any of that because the glory of God's going to light it. During the eternal state, after the thousand years on the earth, and Satan's released and tempts everybody and who, that's able to be tempted on the earth, and Jesus destroys them, and we then go to spend eternity with him, and there's no more stuff except glory forever and ever, and a new Jerusalem, and a new heaven, new earth, all that. There's no temple. So if Jesus is going to come back and anoint a most holy place, the kingdom has to be on the earth. If there's no temple in the eternal state. The need to anoint it probably is because it had been defiled and desecrated by the Antichrist. So, wherever he goes, it's definitely messed up. Go to Daniel 9. Let's take a look at the last two verses of Daniel 9, or actually three Daniel 9, 25, 26, and 27. Now we're going to do some math. I was told there'd be no math. Daniel 9, some of you are old enough to remember that. Look at verses 25 through 27. Look what Gabriel says to Daniel now. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in trouble, a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and, and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, Gabriel now tells Daniel when the 490 years for Israel are going to begin. He says from the time that the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem starts, from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that starts the, that starts the time clock. There's going to be seven sevens or seven seven-year periods, which is how many years? 49 years. And then there's going to be 62 sevens. Anybody able to do math in your head real fast? That's 434 years. 49 and 434 together adds up to 483. But I thought there was going to be 490 years. Now we're missing one seven-year period. As you're going to see, there's a break in this prophecy, and I'll point that out to you in a little bit. We're going to take these verses and break them down slowly so you can see what's here. But this is what Gabriel says. He says, from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there's going to be seven sevens or 49 years, and also 62 sevens. And oh, by the way, the city's going to be rebuilt during times of difficulty, but it's going to be a full restoring, and there's going to be moat, trench, walls, all that stuff. And at the end of the 483 years, anointed one is going to come. Actually, the Hebrew word is Messiah. Messiah is going to come, and he'll have nothing. Now, 
The Hebrew that's translated cut off and shall have nothing actually is tied to capital punishment. He will be put to death by capital punishment is what the Hebrew is saying. Isn't that what happened to Jesus? And have nothing. Now, there's been great debate over what is the decree then? Where do we start the math? How do we start adding up the 490 years? Because there's more than one decree to go back and rebuild in the Bible. Now, I'm not going to do to you what I did last night to the people on Tuesday night. I learned my lesson. And my wife came after Bible study said, you kind of lost them there. Don't do that Wednesday night. All right, so I'm not going to put, I'm not going to do to you what I did to them. But I'm going to have you write down in your notes and, double, and you can double check me later on. There are four decrees to go back and rebuild. Three of them are all tied to rebuilding the temple. And only one is to, tied to rebuilding Jerusalem. Remember, Gabriel says, from the decree to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. So one of the first decrees you're going to see is Ezra chapter 1. I want to read this one to you. I want you to see it. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Go to the book of Ezra. In chapter 1, look at verses 1 through 4. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. Thus says the Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and with goods and with beasts and besides freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. So here Cyrus decrees that they can leave Babylon, remember Nebuchadnezzar and Babylonians were in power, then the Medes and the Persians came. While Cyrus is in charge during that time, their 70 years of captivity has come to an end, and Cyrus makes a decree that they can go back and rebuild the temple. But that's not the decree that Gabriel's referring to, because that's the decree to go back and rebuild the temple, not the decree to go back and build Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter 6, I'm not going to read it to you, but in Ezra chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, Ezra 6, 1 through 12, we see Darius reaffirm Cyrus's decree. He actually finds some writings and he realized Cyrus had made this decree to go back and rebuild the temple. And he reaffirms the decree and says, hey, if you haven't heard about this, go help. And in Ezra chapter 7, we see Artaxerxes, again, still part of the Medes and the Persians. In Ezra 7, verses 11 through 24, Ezra 7, 11 through 24, we see Artaxerxes' decree that Ezra can continue with the temple service. In other words, it's been rebuilt, but you can keep doing what you do in there, and I want to make sure you have everything you need to keep the temple service going. Those are three decrees about going back and rebuilding, but it's tied to the temple. I want you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. It's right in the next book in your Bibles if you're in Ezra with, Ezra with me. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Nehemiah, if you don't know, was the cupbearer to the king at this time. This is Artaxerxes of the Medes and the Persians. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. If you don't know, by the way, you weren't allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. 
That was not allowed. You be always, everybody had to be happy. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city of my place of my father's graves lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to, the, to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. This was in the spring, March of 444 B.C. This is in the spring of 444 B.C. Nehemiah says, you want to know why I'm sad? The city where my father's graves are lies in ruins. Would I be allowed to leave my job here for you here in Medo-Persia and go back and rebuild the city? The king says, just tell me how long you're going to be gone. And when you come back, you're free to go do it. And if you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, he was tasked with rebuilding the walls in the city of Jerusalem. Now, by the way, it only took like 50-something days to get the walls rebuilt. But if you do a full study of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, you might want to take a wild guess how long it took? 49 years. 49 years. Oh, and by the way, if you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, did they have it easy rebuilding the walls? No. There are sections of Nehemiah that says that they're working with one hand with tools and a sword in the other hand, fighting people off while they're trying to rebuild the walls because they had so much opposition, even from some Jews had opposition. Well, I remember Gabriel says that it's going to be rebuilt with walls and a trench, but in times of difficulty. It took 49 years for the full rebuilding of the city, of the walls and the city, just like Gabriel had said. And then after that, you do math of 483 more years, sorry, 434 more years after that, a total of 483 years, and you get to the year 33 AD. All right, 444 BC. Remember, every year was only 360 days. You do the math of the number of days, it's 483 years later is 33 AD. Does anybody want to take a wild guess what happened in 33 AD? That was the year Jesus was crucified. Oh, and by the way, I didn't kill you with all this because I could have. But if you're interested in that stuff, there's websites that have all this for you. Let me just tell you, you do the math and you count the day from when the decree happened to the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey on the literal last day of the 483 year prophecy. Oh, by the way, the anointed one, the Messiah, was capitally put to death. And he had nothing. Go back to Daniel 9. Look at verse 25 again, 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off or put to death and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is now to come after that shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. In other words, shall destroy the city and the temple. Isn't that interesting? Was there a temple in Jerusalem when Daniel's being given this prophecy? No. Remember, they haven't been allowed to leave 
captivity yet. They had the decree for Cyrus to go rebuild the temple hadn't happened yet. It's a few years away still. So here he's already being told that there's going to be a temple, but it's going to be destroyed too. Go to Luke 19. Because he just said there's going to be another prince who's going to come on the scene. And the people of that prince are going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Go to Luke 19. I want you to see what Jesus said on that exact day that he rode into Jerusalem. Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. And when Jesus, when he drew near the city, he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. There it is again. Jesus said, they're not gonna, they're gonna, the city's going to be destroyed because you rejected me. And they're not going to leave a stone on top of another. By the way, again, all this that I'm sharing with you is historically accurate, and you can double-check me. There's lots of documentation. But when the Romans, or those are the people who destroyed the city, when they burned the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, they burned it so well that all the gold that was all over the temple, remember the articles of gold, the walls of gold, all this stuff, it melted and went down inside the cracks of all the stones, and the Romans, once it cooled, wanting to get to all that gold, took every stone apart. There wasn't a stone left on top of another in the temple. It was totally all leveled so they could get to the gold, just like Jesus prophesied. Remember in Matthew 24, he's walking in the temple mount, and the disciples said to him, look at the temple, look at Solomon's, not Solomon's temple, but look at the temple of Herod. And uh, he said, there won't be one stone left on top of another. But also, don't miss this. He prophesies that there's going to be the city destroyed, the temple destroyed. And if you read this prophecy carefully, one can see that there's a break into that between the 69 sevens, the seven sevens and the 62 sevens, the 483 years. There's a break now between that and that one last seven. Remember, he is going to come and make a covenant, confirm a covenant with the many for one seven. There's a break there. We're in that time period that's the break in the prophecy. God said 490 years are decreed for Jerusalem and Israel to finish all these things. But after 483 of those years, because the Messiah is going to be rejected and put to death, the city's going to be destroyed. And I think Daniel, Gabriel puts it this way. Listen to how Gabriel says. He says, the people of the prince who is to come, that's the Romans, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. By the way, is that a pretty good assessment of the history of Israel from that point on? They were removed from the land. They've been outside their own land for almost 2,000 years. They've been dealing with war and decimation. Even though they're back in the land, they still had to fight, and they're having to watch themselves. They've got to build this dome to keep the rockets from. They don't have it easy, and they won't. They won't until Jesus comes back. But... We also saw something else in verse 26 that lines up not only with previous study of Daniel's visions, but also history. It says the people of the prince who is still to come, that's not Jesus, as you're about to see, the Antichrist, the people of the Antichrist who's to come 
and make a covenant and break the covenant, the people are the ones who will come and destroy the city. And like I've already said, who destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70? The Romans. By the way, do you remember our study in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 about Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the vision of the statue and Daniel's vision of the four beasts? Who was the fourth kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Do you remember the gold head was Babylon? The chest of silver was Medo-Persia. The thighs of bronze were Greece. And the legs of iron, which then later on are going to have feet mixed with iron and clay, was who? Was Rome. And Daniel had the vision of the four beasts. You remember there was the lion, Babylon. And then there was the goat, sorry, not the goat, bear, Medo-Persia. And then there was the, the leopard, which is Greece. And then there was this beast that he couldn't even describe because it didn't even look like any other animal. And we saw that that was Rome. The Romans are the ones who came and destroyed the city. Now, does that mean the Antichrist is going to be a Roman? No, be careful. Remember, this guy that's going to come on the scene is going to come from the Roman kingdom or the Roman empire. Somewhere within that sphere of their control over the earth, that's where the Antichrist is going to come from. But again, keep yourself from trying to figure out who the Antichrist is or who it could be. The Bible says he won't be revealed until after he who restrains the Holy Spirit's work through the church is removed. Then he's going to be revealed. If you know who the Antichrist is, that's not a good thing. <laughs> not a good thing at all, because the Bible says he won't be made known or revealed until we're gone. So don't waste any time trying to figure it out, but just know this. The Antichrist is going to come out of the Roman kingdom, but the Roman kingdom incorporated a lot of nations. So we, that's all we know. But this prince who's going to come is going to come out of the Roman kingdom, and he's going to, as we already saw, I could take you to these passages, but for the sake of time tonight, I'm not going to do that. But I'd like you to write down and go look again at those prophecies in Daniel 2, 36 through 45, Daniel 2, 36 through 45, and Daniel 7, 23 through 28, Daniel 7, 23 through 28. The prophecies talk about how those during the end, and especially the Daniel 7 one, talks about how the kingdom that's going to be at the end, the rebuilding of the Roman Empire, is going to be made up of 10 kings. But then there's going to come up this other king, the 11th one, and he's going to remove three. And then pretty soon all the other kings are going to hand their authority to him, and that's the Antichrist. And he's going to make a covenant with the many. But at halfway through that seven-year treaty, peace treaty that he makes with Israel and the other nations, he's going to break it. Declare himself to be God, step into the wing of the temple that Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. By the way, and this is just interesting. Some of you are old enough to remember the Camp David peace accords. Remember Anwar Shaddat and all that stuff? Do y'all remember that they almost made a peace treaty? Does anybody remember how many year peace treaty they had put together? It was a seven year peace treaty, but it had never been ratified. It never got ratified. It was put together and everything. It was a seven-year peace treaty, but it never happened. The Bible says that the Antichrist is going to come and confirm a covenant with the many. Could it be ratifying the peace treaty that was designed years ago? Possibly, but don't try to figure it all out. We just, just an interesting little tidbit. But the end of verse 27 shows us that the decreed end is going to be poured out on the desolator. In other words, I'm going to close tonight with this. The Antichrist is going to get 
a lot of authority and power. He's going to have rule over the whole earth and he's going to make it. You can't buy or sell if you're on the earth at the time unless you take his mark and worship him and worship the image that's been made of him. It's just going to be a horrific time. And folks, by the way, can you not believe how it's possible right now for the world to control whether you eat or don't eat or whether you buy anything? You can get all the cash you want. It won't do you any good because at that time, it'll all be electronically controlled most likely. And if you don't got the mark, you can't, you can't do it. It's going to be tied, though. The mark's tied to the worship of the beast. So don't get sucked into all this stuff, the vaccines, the mark of the beast, and all this stuff. The, the mark of the beast is going to be tied to specific worship of the Antichrist. You're not going to be tricked into it. And I actually don't believe that it's going to happen while we're here. It's going to happen afterwards. Remember, that's during the tribulation period. We're already gone. Too many Christians are getting all worried about, is this the mark of the beast? Is that the mark of the beast? Stop it. Read your Bible, take a deep breath, and get off the internet. Let me give you three passages as we close tonight. Go to Isaiah chapter 10. I want to show you just a few of the places that show that the decreed end is going to come and be poured out on the Antichrist and the desolator. Oh, and as you're going to see also in all those who worship him. Isaiah chapter 10, look at verses 20 through 23. In that day, that's prophecy words again. The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. That's the Antichrist. But will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. We've been saying that all along, haven't we? Most of them are going to be killed. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. He's going to judge the Antichrist and everybody for their wickedness. And it's going to be a full end. And once that is all done, guess what? The rest is all party. The rest is all party. And I can't wait for that day too. But we're still a kingdom to come. Go to Revelation 19. Let me show you. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. By the way, Y'all know who this is, right? This is Jesus. But you remember at the beginning of Revelation, the first seal was opened and the Antichrist came out on a white horse pretending to be Jesus. But this says the real thing. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. By the way, anybody want to know what that name is? Exactly. Good for you. Man, you got, we had to start all over again if someone started to guess what it was. If it says he's the only one who knows it, he's the only one that knows it. Good for you. You can go home. You're done. All right. You're good. All right. Listen, actually, we got three minutes left, so don't worry about it. You, you can make it the last three, four minutes. Listen closely here. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's us, by the way, and the angels and us. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hang on for a second. Oh, is Jesus going to need to rule with a rod of iron when we're in heaven? So he must be coming back to the earth. Folks, I, I keep hammering this because you'd be amazed at how much of what percentage of Christians today are taught that there's no kingdom on the earth. The amillennial view. Most of our churches today, a greater number of our Christian churches today are teaching that there is no coming literal millennial kingdom on the earth. But if you would read the whole of scripture, there has to be. He's not going to rule with a rod of iron when we're in heaven. But he's going to come and rule with a rod of iron. Keep reading. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and the riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who's sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, that's the Antichrist, with, and with it the false prophet, who in, in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who's sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom, when at this point the Israelites are realizing... Jesus was the Messiah. All the prophecies were true. And they start worshiping him. He, they're hiding in the wilderness and he's protecting them. Jesus comes back, defeats his enemies all the way to Jerusalem. But when he gets to the Antichrist and the false prophet, he doesn't kill them. He takes them and throws them alive right into the lake of fire. Oh, look at verse, chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. We've already seen that Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years and there's going to be that age of righteousness we were looking at. Look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. We already talked about that earlier tonight. All the babies that are born to the people during the millennial kingdom that were humans. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are or were. Because that's where they're going to be thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan was the beast. Nope. Satan is the dragon. He's the serpent. He's the one who empowers the beast. But the beast is the Antichrist. It's the Antichrist. What's going to happen to him? He's going to be dealt with and tormented day and night forever and ever, just like Satan's going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Oh, and as you're going to see, if you kept reading in verse 11 and following, all the wicked dead from all time are going to be brought before the great white throne and dealt with, and they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Well, they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Folks, all the wickedness is going to be dealt with. Is there some wickedness probably being planned on the globe right now? Are there bad people plotting behind the scenes to do wicked stuff? Let me encourage you with something I've said to you before, but I'll send you home with this. Jesus is in full control even of all that. 
The Bible said that the Pharisees were gathering at night in secret to plot the death of Jesus. And this is what they said. You can double check me in the scriptures. They said, but let's not do this during the Passover, lest there be a riot. We're going to kill him. We're planning secretly to have him put to death, but not during the Passover so there won't be a riot. Jesus, though, at the same time they're having these meetings, is meeting with his disciples. And he says, guys, let me tell you something. Um, during the Passover, they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles and they're going to kill me. And who was the one who told Judas when to go get him? Jesus. You ever think about that? It didn't just happen. Judas didn't determine when to go. Jesus turns to him that night at the end of eating the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal, and he says, what you're going to go do, go do it now. Now, the rest of the disciples had no clue what he was talking about. But Judas knew. And who told Judas when to go do it? Jesus. Oh, are there wicked men on the globe planning things? Are there politicians and powerful people that are wealthy plotting things behind the scenes wickedly? Yes. Is it our job to go find out who they are and root them out and get rid of them? No, our eyes to be on Jesus and say, Lord, you're in full control of it. You said that was going to happen and it's going to happen. I'm not going to get a bellyache over all the stuff. Stop, stop. If the news is making you get madder and madder, stop watching it. And go. Oh, there's nothing wrong with sadder and sadder, but if it makes you go to Jesus and say, Lord, it's going to happen. You said that. But the Bible also says that in these days, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I love you. Hang on. He's coming back. Question. Yes, ma'am. Question. When Jesus died in 33 AD. Mm -hmm. After death? No, it's, it's actually Anno Domini. It's Latin for the year of the Lord. Okay, so the year he was born... Let's just say around the year of his born, there's actually confusion as to the year that he was born. But they calendars and people got a little confused during the time that the Romans started to redo the clock. But Anno Domini, A.D., talks about it means the year of our Lord. By the way, do you notice they're trying to change A.D. now to what common time or something like that? They call it C.T. now or common time. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been going on for a little while again. Don't worry about it. The Antichrist is going to try to change the times and the law. Love you guys. See you in two weeks. Yeah.